0: Good morning, I'm Kenny, I'm not Jackson, I'm just proudly twinning with him this morning, in case you didn't notice. It was good for me to look across and be surprised to see you, Mo. I thought you'd be already flying to Chad, but tonight you are. It was such a good reminder as I look across the room, she drops to her knees as we're singing in awe and reverence, humbly bow, and we're singing a song about, God, please keep us from mere formal duty. What a helpful reminder of that, that it's anything about mere formal duty. You're taking your last drink of worship at your home church here before she's going to Chad for two months to support um, our partners, join Jeremy Herman, helping take care of their kids and homeschool and do some things that are going to help them get some refreshment in the next few months. So anyway, don't let her get out without a hug from every single one of you in second service, right? Okay. Um, let me pray and let's dive in to our pastors this morning. Uh, God, I confess that I frequently slip into mere formal duty in my life, um, and we probably all do it 's easy to to drift into autopilot and go through motions of Christianity or Christian living or worship and God that does us no good, and it does no good t- to you. It's not honoring to you. We don't want that. We want something beyond that this morning. And so I pray um, that you would give us fresh views of you and your glory and our glorious future in Christ. And uh, I pray we would leave here um, um, with a sense of of renewed vision uh, for the life you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll turn to Genesis 38 that is the chapter of redemption story that we're going to rehearse this morning. And, uh, we had our reading service two weeks ago, which if you don't know what that is, you're visiting here at Grace, um, from time to time as we're going to, we preach through books of the Bible, so we're near the end of Genesis, and we'll pause and usually have an entire Sunday devoted to reading out loud the whole next section that we're going to be preaching through. And this last section of Genesis was so long that we decided to have a special evening reading service two weeks ago. Some of you readers are out there, I can see you, bet you. and betcha. Um, and many of you I know probably missed it because we all fit in this room and we have three morning services, so you do the math. I figured a lot of you didn't get to see the reading service. And this chapter 38 in particular, for me, was a highlight um, of reading this story and hearing it with fresh ears. The way we did it, that was a little bit different rather than just reading the text, uh, which is told in the third-person narrative. We had Judah and Tamar uh, in the first person recount this story themselves. Not, not them, but Evan Abling and Laura Hurlbert. Um, and so uh, I want you to hear that um, reading of the chapter as our reading this morning, and then we're gonna dive in and I'm gonna preach from it. So uh, give your attention to the screen. Let's, let's hear Genesis 38.
1: At that time, I left my brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There I met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. I married her and uh, made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. and We named him Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to yet another son, who we named Onan. She gave birth to still another son, and he was named Shelah. It was at Tzib that she gave birth to him. Now I got a wife from my firstborn, Ur, and her name was Tamar. But Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then I said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law, to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife Tamar, he, um, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. Now what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so, so the Lord put him to death also. Then I said to my daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For I thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, uh, my wife died. and when When I had recovered from my grief, I went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing my sheep, and my friend Hira the Adullamite went with me.
2: When I was told that my father-in-law was on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, I took off my widow's clothes and covered myself with a veil to disguise myself. And then I sat down on the road to Anayam, which is on the road to Timnah. It was obvious to me that though Sheila had now grown up, I had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw me, he thought I was a prostitute, for I had covered myself. Not realizing that I was his daughter-in-law, he came over to me by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you?
1: Uh, I'll send you a young goat from my flock.
2: Will you give me something as a pledge until you send
1: it? Well, What pledge should I give you?
2: Your seal and its cord, and the staff in your hand.
1: So I, I gave them to her, and uh, well, and I slept with her. And she became uh, pregnant by me. After she left, she took off her veil and, and put on her widow's clothes again. And meanwhile, I sent the young goat uh, from, by my friend the Adulamite, in order to get my pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who live there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road to Anayim? And they told him, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. So, my friend came back to me and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who live there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. So, I said, let her keep what she has, or we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, I was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Then I said, bring her out and have her burned to death.
2: As I was being brought out, I sent a message to Judah. I am pregnant Pregnant, by the man man who who owns owns these. See if if you recognize recognize whose steel and and cord cord and staff staff these are.
1: I recognized them and said she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shayla. And I did not sleep with her again.
2: When the time came for Tamar to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out its hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand, and out came his brother. What? the midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zara.
0: Wow, that's quite a story. If you're visiting here this morning, you might be thinking, what's this doing here? (laughs) Or why are you preaching on it? It seems like an unexpected chapter in Redemption's story. It it, it comes, first of all, at us out of left field from chapter 37. We just get the Joseph story rolling, and Joseph is now sold as a slave and uh, brought down to Egypt. And you turn the page to chapter 38, and all of a sudden, we got this story. But it shouldn't surprise us for a few reasons. It shouldn't be as unexpected. First of all, look back at Genesis 37 verse 2. This last section of Genesis, the heading for this section is this. These are the generations of Jacob. So even though it feels to us like the Joseph story because he's the most prominent character through all these chapters, This isn't the Joseph story. It's actually the Jacob story or the Jacob's son's story of whom Judah is one. In fact, Judah doesn't know it at this point, but um, he is going to be the one through whom a significant promise of God is fulfilled. Back in 35, God told Jacob, kings shall come from your own body. You You will have kings in your lineage. And though Judah doesn't know it now he will find out eventually that God's plan is to send the kings through his line. David will be born of his uh, lineage and eventually Jesus, the king of kings. So he is as important to this last section of Genesis as Joseph is. God's gonna use Joseph to protect the family from famine and preserve them in Egypt so they can grow from a giant family to a huge nation. But Judah's the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. Um, This chapter also helps us remember how much time goes by that Joseph is separated from his family in Egypt. We can read these chapters, boom, 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 and just think these kind of all unfolded, but 38 makes us stop and go, oh, Joseph was down there in Egypt long enough for Judah to move away, get married, have three sons, for them all to grow up to at least the first two to marriageable age, and then all these shenanigans happen before famine hits and the, Judah and all the brothers end up down in Egypt. So it reminds us that, that Joseph is enduring a long wait here on God's timing. So what might seem unexpected at first is actually an important link in the chain of God's story that he's, he's, he's unfolding here. Another thing I think that's unexpected in this story, I kind of alluded to already, is the graphic and mature nature of this story. We get stories like this. We've already had a couple of other ones in Genesis with Lot and his daughters uh, and Dinah and her abuse and, and then the violence that followed that. But again, here we get this chapter with Onan's sin and Judah's immorality and his gross injustice and treatment of Tamar. But this shouldn't surprise us either because this is a story again that all the way back in Genesis 3.15, God said this is a story about an enemy, Satan, coming against God's children, his seed. And the battle is going to rage and rage and rage and Satan is going to continue to try to snuff out the line of the one through whom a Savior is going to come. And so again, we shouldn't be surprised that these are some ugly scenes and the battle is not going to be pretty. And on top of all this, it shouldn't surprise us when we get this chapter because Matthew, in his gospel, uh, places this particular chapter of Genesis right in the line of Jesus and reminds us that as you move from Abraham to David to Jesus, this story fits. Listen to the pattern in Matthew's begats or his genealogy. Starts with this. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And suddenly we read a a little left turn. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. All of a sudden there's a mom in the line, which is interesting. Sarah doesn't get mentioned. Rebecca doesn't get mentioned. Rachel, Leah don't get mentioned. The first mother that's mentioned in the line of Jesus is Tamar. So this chapter is a key link in the story. And what God does in it. So, as an outline this morning, here's how I want us to, to, to take this story. There's three unexpected things that we see God doing in this story. This is God's story that He's working out. He 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 uh, uses an unexpected hero. He brings about unexpected repentance in Judah, and at the end, He chooses the unexpected heir. Unexpected hero, unexpected repentance, and the unexpected heir. Let's jump into the story in in verse 1 here. God uses an unexpected hero. Our question might be, okay, well, who needs a hero in chapter 38? And at first, it might be, be obvious. Well, of course, Tamar, she's the vulnerable one. She's the one who's being taken advantage of and cast aside. And certainly, she's the one who needs a hero. And she does. Judah fails to be that hero. But here's the crazy thing. I think the person in most need of a hero is Judah in this chapter. He needs a hero to save him from himself because he seems to be trying to write himself out of God's story of redemption. He's part of the covenant family, the one through whom all the nations are gonna get blessed. And he's one of the sons who are called to multiply and be fruitful and raise up a nation for God's, of God's people. And back in 37, he's already off to a terrible start. He's the brother who seems to be a leader among the brothers but is leading them to not j- kill Joseph, but hey, let's kind of make some money off of this. He's the one who suggests selling them to, to slaves and both getting rich and let's just lie to dad and let dad grieve inconsolably thinking Joseph is dead and we'll just keep the secret to ourselves. That's the Judah we're introduced to in chapter 37. And as the story begins here, we're gonna see Judah is, is moving Uh, down a dead-end path. Verse one, the trajectory continues. He leaves his brothers behind him and his father, and he moves down to a Canaanite town, takes up with a Canaanite friend named Hira. Verses two through five, he follows in Esau's footsteps. He disregards the, the desires of Abraham and Isaac, his forefathers, to not marry among the Canaanites whom God was eventually gonna bring to destruction. But what does he do? He takes a Canaanite wife has three sons. And then when his first son is old enough to be married, he takes a woman named Tamar to be his wife. Doesn't say that Tamar is a Canaanite. I think it's likely she is, probably, given the context where they are. They've left the covenant family behind. Um, but I, either way, so now, verse 7, in quick succession, it just keeps getting worse. We find out that J- Judah's firstborn is so wicked, it says, that God puts him to death as an act of divine judgment which should be stunning to us because he didn't even do that with Cain who murdered his brother Abel in cold blood. This is the first individual in the book of Genesis that it says God individually took him out because he was wicked. What he did in the flood and what he did at Sodom and Gomorrah, Ur specifically gets called out and taken out by God. He just gets one sad verse. And so now Judah is responsible for Tamar. And her well-being, she's childless because of this sin of her husband, her dead husband. And he's obligated culturally to to her to help her provide a child, not just for her own well-being, but to sustain Ur's family name and Judah's family line. It was called Leveret marriage. In fact, later, when uh, Israel is given the law in Sinai by God, God includes this as a law for them to take care of widows. He says... Later, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. That is is supposed to be describing a tender, compassionate, caring for the vulnerable act. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this is a way that even later God made it a law to provide. And so Judah here, even in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this is what he was doing. So he gives Onan to Tamar to fulfill that obligation. But verse 8, turns out Onan's wicked too. And rather than see this as an opportunity to provide for his his sister-in-law and care for her in her need, he's hard-hearted. And he recognizes, he sees the writing on the wall. He realizes, Ur's dead, I'm number one now double portion, firstborn inheritance, that's coming to me. So if she gets pregnant, has a son, I get bumped back down the line to number two. And he wasn't gonna have that, so what does he do? He intentionally prevents her from getting pregnant, all the while repeatedly and happily using her for his own gratification. And it's this hypocrisy where it appears to the community that he's doing right by Tamar, all the while God sees she's trapped and God strikes him dead too. Verse 10. Verse 11. Now Judah's worried. He only has one son left here. Two of them have been taken out. And rather than admit the obvious that his two sons are so wicked that this was God's act of judgment on them, he blames Tamar. Superstitiously imagines, well, she must be the black widow here in this situation. And so I've got this one remaining son. What is he going to do? So publicly he betroths Shelah to Tamar and promises and says, well, you go off to your father's household for a while and when he's old enough to be marriageable, he's not quite ready yet, I'll get back to you. Don't call me, I'll call you. We find out that he has no intention at all of carrying, uh, following through on this and giving Tamar to Shelah um, as a husband to provide children. And so now she's trapped. And then verse 12, Judah's wife dies. So notice Judah has painted himself into a corner here and Tamar along with him that there's no hope earth, from an earthly perspective of an heir coming out of this because Tamar's not gonna have a child by Shelah because Judah's gonna keep Shelah. But because he's betrothed her to Shayla, he can't just give Shayla to someone else to to be married and have a child. So he's sort of cut off there. And then his wife dies. And so even if there was still a chance of him having any more children, that path is cut off. And so this is a dead end. So he needs to be rescued. As well as Tamar, she's a childless double widow with no apparent viable options to provide children for herself and continue the line that she seems patient and obedient and loyal to despite Judah's callous dismissal. He could care less for this covenant family that that he's left behind and she seems to display a loyalty to his family line that he doesn't even have. It's amazing. So here's her heroic act in this chapter. It kind of comes in two stages First, when she finally sees, he's not giving Shayla to me. He's grown now, and it hasn't happened. It's never going to happen. When she sees this, she quickly devises a plan and carries out a plan to deceive Judah into fathering a child by her so that the line could continue. And this is life and death risk for her. She would have known this. If she was caught in the act of deceiving, or later on, if she's successful and her plan does work, she knows inevitably this could mean my execution and death. But she acts on it anyway. She, this bold, daring, risky move. So verse 13 and 14, she learns Judah's going to be traveling up to where his sheep are going to be sheared. She knows that's going to be a celebration. There's drinking and celebrating and a festival going along with this. And so she makes a plan. She takes off her widow's clothing Which, by the way, points again to, I think, her character. Here's Judah. His wife has died. He's gone through the period of mourning. Now he's heading off with Hira to the sheep shearing. And she's still wearing her widow's clothing, honoring her two husbands who God took out because of their wickedness. But anyway, she takes her widow's clothing off and she disguises herself as a prostitute. And she goes and waits at the side of the road at a turnoff where Judah's going to pass by. Verse 15, 16, the plan works. doesn't seem like it takes much effort. Judas sees her, assumes she's a prostitute, turns aside and unwittingly propositions his own daughter-in-law. Verse 17, he offers a payment which he doesn't have on him. So she says, well, I'll take a pledge until you can send that payment up to me. And shrewdly says, well, I'll, I'll take that staff and that seal and that cord. Items of identification, personal identification. I'll just take, leave your driver's license and credit cards with me uh, until you can send the payment back. And she takes it, he gives them. And then it just quickly describes that he offers payment, they complete the transaction, he leaves, she puts on her widow's clothing again, and, and now Judah, who was slow to give his, his final son to Tamar, suddenly is, is super speedy and sending his buddy along to pay his debt and get his stuff back and put this behind him. So Tamar's pulled it off. But then three months later, as she's conceived and begins to show, it's, it comes out. In stage two of heroic act, Judah finds out that, that she's pregnant by immorality and his hypocrisy is really Breathtaking. Here's a man who who's, has no problem, as he sees fit, stopping and consorting with a prostitute along the way. Um, no, pro- no consequences, no problem. But now when his daughter-in-law is found out for this, he's enraged, maybe even fueled by uh, anger and, and, bl- and j- blame that she's responsible for the death of my first two sons. And he calls for a more extreme execution, even than adultery would have called for. Burn her to death. And so as she's being drugged to the fire, it describes she's on her way. She's minutes away from being put to death. She banks everything and she sends ahead those items of pledge along with a message by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And as he gets these things, the second part of her message, she doesn't realize this, echo his very words in the last chapter. Remember when Judah and the brothers bring the bloody coat to Jacob, say, hey, dad, would you identify this? Do you recognize this? And he does. Same word here. He says, Send these to Judah. She says, Send these to Judah and, and ask him to identify whose these are. The irony is sweet. <laughs> and she's successful. Judah looks at him and immediately says, Publicly, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And the end of the chapter, she gives birth to healthy twins. And later on in Genesis, we find she's she's with uh, the twins and with Judah, all with the family that ends up being moved down to Egypt. Okay, so here's a difficult question with these kind of chapters. How are we supposed to read this? What, What do we do with a hero that, you know, is this sort of sinful means to a justified end? I mean, Judah's own words say he... She owed, uh, he owed this to her, right? Uh, I did not give her my son, Sheila. This was an obligation upon him that he was withholding and he was guilty of that. He says, she's in the right compared to me. But she seeks justice through deception and dece- uh, her father-in-law and fathering a child by her father-in-law. I mean, this is kind of hard for us to, to hold together. How is this God's hero? I wonder if we might be reading too much back into the context of this woman Tamar from this ancient Near Eastern place faced with this um, uh, un- unsolvable dilemma. It's not until year, hundreds of years later that Israel's gonna be given the law, it's gonna get more clear. And, and, and I wonder if she looks at her cir- circumstances and she, this is an act of risk-taking for the sake of doing what's right that Judah is failing to do. I was surprised how many commentators as I was studying this passage lean more toward the side of seeing her in, in, in much more favorable light. Listen, one commentator, Bruce Waltke, whose commentary has been really helpful for me. Do I have control of that or you? How about, there it is. He suggests, he says, Tamar, notice, remains true to her Israelite family in spite of its glaring failures and becomes absorbed into it. And he points out, he's talking about normally, meaning normally in the Old Testament, normally Canaanite women absorb Israelite men into their debased culture. And in that light, her deception as a Canaanite prostitute to snare her widowed father-in-law into fathering covenant seed should be evaluated as a daring act of faith. Maybe. Another commentator uh, Victor Hamilton says, you know, in, in the t- at the time, it's even possible that this custom of leveret marriage could even, at times, if necessary, include father-in-law. Here's, here's one thing he wrote. He said, Hittite law and later Middle Assyrian law know of the custom of leveret marriage. And in both law codes, marriage of a father-in-law to his widowed daughter-in-law is condoned. So he just suggests that practice could be reflected here at the end of verse 26 when the point of Judah saying, or saying, and he did not know her again. In other words, maybe it's implying Judah did not choose to exercise his prerogative. Maybe. Maybe not. But I think it's clear the way she's presented in this chapter and later the way Ruth, uh, she's mentioned in the book of Ruth and then included in Matthew 1 genealogy that we are to see Tamar in a a light of of a hero. She stepped up and rescued the line that was going to die out when Judah was failing. But here's the thing. Either way that that goes, the takeaway from this point shouldn't be be like Tamar. Even if aspects of her character are praiseworthy, which I think there are. The takeaway is God isn't stopped by any earthly obstacle and he can work out redemption through the imperfect faith of flawed heroes. That's a theme that the Bible shows us again and again and again. God can overrule powerful forces of injustice like Judah who has the upper hand and is keeping Tamar cut off from hope and a future and he can overcome that through the weak hero and bring rescue where you least expect it. So if at the end of the day, Tamar's actions are sort of a mix of righteous motive, unethical means, God bringing about his plan through the imperfect faith of flawed heroes, well, that's certainly not the first time he does that. I goodness, I was thinking about Samson this week. I still don't know how that guy got into Hebrews 11. I mean, that guy was clearly, unarguably unexp- uh, un- wicked in many ways, but he did still at times act in faith, very imperfect faith, and God used him to be a hero and a rescuer in his day. And, and so he's done with Tamar. She becomes the first of four women, in fact, in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, all who were outsiders that God used to continue the messianic line. Tim Keller writes, Even the begats of the Bible drip with God's mercy. I love that. So Tamar becomes the unexpected hero, and not only does she save the line from dying out, her actions also um, bring about this unexpected repentance of Judah. God uses this to bring Judah to a moment of being confronted with his moral bankruptcy and failure, and he has a turning point, a pivot point of repentance in this story. Sometimes points of application don't hit my head until Sunday morning as we're here, but just before 8 a.m. service was thinking of times as a Christian, have you ever worried, what if one day I try to write myself out of God's story? Have you ever wondered? You think, that's not how I feel this morning. I love, I'm so thankful for what God's done for me in Christ and I want to follow him and be faithful, but I've seen lots of people just bail on God or head off down a path towards sin and and you wonder, what if that happens to me one day? I was thinking about Jesus' words in John 10 where he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. <laughs> so what if we try to jump out? Because we try, don't we? We sing that Him prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Even leave the one I love. God, what, what, if, when I, what if I follow Judah's course and I make a hard left? This story is strangely reassuring to me. It's an example. It's a glimpse of how God in his severe mercy and grace can grab us and say, come back, not so fast. Because that's what he does with Judah here. He's heading down a a path to death and God rescues him and turns him. And he does it through this moment that reminds me of later if you're familiar with King David and his great sins with Bathsheba, adultery, and then killing his, uh, her husband, Uriah, and he's living with the hidden sin and the guilt of this, and Nathan, the prophet, comes and confronts him. And there's this scene where J- J- David's blind to his sin or he's, he's, he's hiding it, and Nathan just tells him a story and makes up a story about this wealthy man who has all these herds and sheep, and one day he wants to have a feast, and he goes to this poor guy and takes his one sheep and says, give me that one and he kills it and gives the feast. And as he's telling the story, David gets ticked off, and he says, that man needs to die. And Nathan says, you're that man. And David realizes it, and he's cut to the heart, and he repents. And this is a similar sort of moment for Judah. Suddenly he's confronted as he's feeling righteous indignation toward Tamar. Burner! (laughs) Identify these. Whose are these again? And he realizes he's just as deserving of this death that he's calling for as her, more so, he realizes. And it brings about a repentance that we see evidence of. He publicly confesses she's in the right, I was in the wrong. He does right by her. He takes care of then now his his daughter-in-law and these twins who are now his heirs. And later in Genesis, we see two beautiful images of a radically different Judah, by contrast to what we see at the beginning. Listen to this in chapter 43. When Jacob has to be convinced to let the brothers bring Benjamin down to Egypt because Joseph has asked them to do this, and he doesn't want to let him go, the same Judah who in this scene gives a pledge to a prostitute that, hey, I'll pay you later, same word gets used. He says to Jacob, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. Great care for his father and how he feels about this precious son in contrast to how he felt about his dad in 37, right? And then two chapters later, when they bring Benjamin down, and Joseph has still kept his identity hidden from all the brothers, and they don't realize who he is, and he says to them, he sets up the scenario where Benjamin is caught red-handed and is going to be called to be Joseph's slave and not allowed to go back to the father. And listen to what Judah says to Joseph. He begs him, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. As a servant to my Lord, let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This tenderness now that he has for his dad, at the grief that this would bring him and his willingness to put himself in his place, this moment in chapter 38 is this pivot point of repentance for for Judah, where he sees his sin and then he responds accordingly. And and there's this unexpected moment of repentance. And as I was thinking this week of unexpected repentance, it it struck me, all repentance is unexpected. (laughs) My repentance is unexpected. If you've turned from your sin, that's unexpected. Ephesians 2 says, just like Judah, all of us were dead in the trespasses and sins we once walked. We were just all following the course of this world. We were just carrying out the desires of our own bodies and minds. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just following that course, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And you know what the first step in God making you alive together with Christ is? Helping you see your sin honestly came across this little book by a Puritan, Thomas Watson, on the doctrine of repentance. And he summarized in six points, here's what true repentance is, is including. It starts with a sight of sin, seeing my sin. And then it includes sorrow for sin, feeling properly about your sin. And third, it involves a confession of sin, an admission of guilt. And then he says it includes shame for sin, the appropriate feeling of of how I should feel about living this way and and, and having a heart like this. And finally he says it includes hatred of sin and turning from sin. And I think we see all these in Judah. He sees it, sorrow, he confesses it, and he turns from it. But if it weren't for the mercy of God to reveal our sin to us, we, we wouldn't do this. But this is what God does. I've shared this quote before. I love this line by Shai Lin in his song, Spread His Fame. Here's what God does. He takes in blatant, flagrant vagrants. He breaks them, remakes them, and shapes them to hate sin. I love that. That's what he does with Judah here. That's what he wants to do with you. If he hasn't done this in you this morning, I want to ask you, can you see your sin this morning? Do you recognize same impulses, same tendencies in your heart, self-preservation, Deception, lust, immorality, pride, self-righteousness, condemning in others what is present in your own heart. Do you recognize these things keep you from a holy God? God can't can't, uh, show love and and grace to you um, if something's not done about that. And what he has done about that for you is given Christ in your place who died for your sin. And he graciously comes and he helps you see your sin and say there's, help you see there's an alternative. You can let go of your sin and, and grab onto Christ and know forgiveness and his spirit to help us now turn from sin in a decided way and walk in new paths. If you can see your sin this morning and you feel sorrow over it, would you confess it this morning? You can pray, confess it to God. God, I see it now. And it's ugly and I don't want it. I want to be free from it. God, give me a hatred for this sin. Help me to feel shame over this sin that would lead me to not go back to it again. And help me to walk in new ways. I would love to pray with you and do that at the close of this service. Come find me. Well, the chapter concludes with one last unexpected event. And this is this crazy birth of twins. And God chooses the unexpected heir. Let me just read it. This is one of the strangest descriptions of a birth of twins ever. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tar- tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. What a breakthrough. He just sort of elbows his way by and he gets out First. It's crazy. And so he names this one Perez, which means breach or, or breakthrough. And afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. We're supposed to see a similarity here. Jacob and Esau with the younger brother elbowing the older one out of the way for the rites. And here, right in the, in the birth again, we get this strange motif of the younger being exalted over the older. The younger is being raised up to the place where culturally the firstborn should be. And I think every time we see this, we're not just supposed to assume this is, you know, on the human level, humans, you know, trying to get a leg up, but that God at each one of these steps is saying, I choose this one, not this one. No, I'm going to save through this one, not this one. Her, not her. Him, not him. Him. It's a reminder. God is writing this story. God is telling this story and working these things out. And He sends the one He chooses, and He will ultimately send the one of His own choosing, Jesus. I was thinking of, and so Perez and Zerah and Tamar all get memorialized in Jesus' lineage. I think one of the common threads of these, uh, of at least Tamar, um, but Ruth as well in the genealogy of Jesus, is in both their case, or especially Tamar's case, this child is produced from uh, this sort of scandalous situation. And when Jesus comes, Mary, there was no scandal. Mary was innocent. She's conceived by the Holy Spirit, but everyone else doesn't know that. That was a hard story probably to swallow. Jesus probably grew up under the shadow of shame and People wagging their heads and thinking differently of Mary. And yet, this is the one of God's choosing, Jesus. And when he comes, his life and his ministry don't look at all like the expectations of a, of a hero, of a Messiah. He comes from Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? He's the son of a carpenter. He makes ki- uh, claims about bringing a kingdom, but he ends up being crowned with thorns and hung on a cross, shamefully executed as a horrible criminal with the most gruesome execution, devised, crucifi- or execution, crucifixion, suffocating and torture to death. And he's buried in a tomb. But we know this is God's hero. God raises him from the dead, exalts Jesus now to the right hand, makes him our great high priest who brings us to God, breaks down the barrier of us and our sin between us and God. And now Jesus is king of kings forever. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to bring many sons to glory. That's what Hebrews says. Being the one rightful heir to God's throne, inheritor of all things forever, you know what he wants to do? He wants to share the inheritance. You know who else are unexpected heirs? You and me. The fact that we're included in God's family, like Romans 8, 17 says now, that we can be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ you realize that if, if you've turned from your sin and you are in christ you're an unexpected heir and i hope you realize how shocking it is that you that god included you and that makes you grateful thankful and eager to include others i want us to take a couple of minutes of quiet to pray and ask the lord what do i need to hear this morning Maybe you need to identify with Judah. Judah seemed to be doing all he could to write himself out of God's story for him. And maybe you've been raised in a Christian home. Maybe you currently live in a Christian home and you've heard lots about God and his grace and and the calling he has on your life, but you don't care much about that. Maybe you're just on a wandering path. You've put sort of following Jesus on hold. Maybe I still believe those things. Maybe I don't, but I just want to live for this right now. And this morning, God's calling you back from that path from death to life maybe like Judah this morning there is something that you need to hear God today saying to you you are that man you're that woman you need to own it turn from it maybe you're in a dead end situation or in a pit right now in your life that feels like there's no way out and you need to remember that the God who is writing your story who's sovereign can bring rescue where you least expect it So take a couple of minutes. Pray, talk to the Lord, ask him to help you leave here not missing what he has for you and then Jeff's gonna close us with one last hymn. Pray.